Well, hey everybody, it is February 2020 and we are here once again at the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club. Uh, we're going to be talking about carbon monoxide, a controversy in carbon monoxide, and no, it's got nothing to do with hyperbaric oxygen. That one's been talked about and we're going to pick up on some, basically some new stuff that was recently uh, released and this is, does carbon monoxide increase the risk of either PE or DVTs just as a risk factor in and of itself. Um, we're going to start off with, a, as most research starts off, case reports of maybe this happened. Uh, we have two of them. One of them, maybe not so convincing. The other one, maybe a little bit more convincing as giving us a notion that there may be a link between uh, carbon monoxide and uh, venous thrombosis. Um, so, Adam, take it away with uh, those case reports. Sure, thank you, Zane. Uh, so the first case report we'll talk about is uh, called CO poisoning as an associated risk factor for CVT. And this is by Finney and others, and this is from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine from 2018. And so this is a case report, and I suspect this is the one that was a weaker link, as you said, uh, based on the two we read. Um, and this is a case report of a 24-year-old woman who developed um, unprecedented uh, severe headaches that were uh, kind of lasting about two days. Uh, she was uh, checked for carbon monoxide uh, during the course of her evaluation. Seems like a lot of diagnostic tests were performed. And she had a uh, carboxyhemoglobin percent of about four. The uh, other uh, important parts of <laughs> of her uh, evaluation were ultimately she received uh, uh, neuroimaging which revealed a venous um, thrombosis in her brain. Now there has been some speculation before this that there's a linkage between uh, venous thromboembolic disease and uh, carbon monoxide poisoning so they wanted to investigate this a little further and uh, provided some more details. Now. Um, there was apparently um, in her car, apparently her car had, quote, high levels of carbon monoxide, which was determined by the fire department. Unfortunately, that's a little bit of a vague statement. In addition, uh, this 24-year-old woman was on oral contraceptives, uh, which is a known risk factor for uh, any kind of venous thromboembolism. And during the course of her entire evaluation, she had fairly detailed uh, that neurovascular imaging, including a formal angiogram, which revealed abnormal uh, cerebral vasculature. So a lot of confounders, and in addition, a carbox, uh, carboxyhemoglobin percentage of about four is probably within the normal realm for most people if you're in a city, um, especially a city with cars. <laughs> um, uh, and I do notice that this is from the University of Pittsburgh, which is a beautiful urban so, so I think there's a lot of confounding things, and it's not a very strong association with carbon monoxide and VTE, venous thromboembolic disease. However, uh, as Zane kind of implied, uh, this is reasonable to generate a hypothesis and can lead to further research questions. The second uh, case report we're going to talk about is life-threatening pulmonary embolism that occurred immediately after acute carbon monoxide poisoning in the emergency department. This is also from American Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2018, and this is by John Lee and others. So this is a case that is a little bit more compelling. This is the case of uh, an individual patient, a 38-year-old woman, who was found uh, stuporous and minimally responsive in her home uh, with some burned charcoal in the room. So. 
certainly qualifying for carbon monoxide exposure. She was brought to the ER where she uh, had some degree of hemodynamic instability and of course this altered mental status. She was, um, her initial blood work showed a carboxyhemoglobin of 27.7 uh, percent, which by any standard is abnormal and certainly concerning and also consistent with those symptoms and exposure history. At that time, uh, the patient was uh, given a emergency department echocardiogram by one of the ED physicians, which at that time was interpreted as normal. The patient then underwent hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and while receiving that, developed acute hemodynamic instability. She developed hypotension and uh, worsening of her hemodynamic parameters. They did a repeat bedside echocardiogram, but uh, presumably the same ED physician who was able to compare her echo from three hours previously and noted a significantly different RV and LV function. The patient was apparently too unstable to transport to CT at that time, so they empirically thrombolyzed her um, and kind of continued her care. A couple of days later, when she was stable enough for a CT scan, they did a CT scan, which did confirm a PE. So a little bit more of a compelling association there. Um, and so these are enough to at least generate the hypothesis and ask the question, to what extent, if any, is carbon monoxide associated with thromboembolic disease? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. Certainly the second article. Obviously, I agree with you on the first article. Yeah. I could throw it in there. They were both published literally back-to-back in the same mm -hmm. e-publication list of case reports in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Uh, but this one certainly is like she came in hemodynamically okay, echo showed okay, and then mm -hmm. boom, after HBO therapy, which we said we weren't going to mention, but I have to mention it. <laughs> um, basically, uh, she came back and she has a PE. You know, after being in the hyperbaric oxygen site, you can say, was it the carbon monoxide? Was it the immobilization? Mm -hmm. Was it hyperbaric itself? What was the thing that caused it? But it certainly uh, sort of set us up for the next several articles. Now, before we even get there, I get this article and uh, the next article I will mention are both from South Korea. And, and that becomes important because uh, how both historically and even in modern times, they heat homes there. They use the, um, what's called the on-dull uh, traditional method, and there's modern versions of it, of heating their homes, where there's a fire, and there's these briquettes they sell, which is imagine what they describe, mm -hmm. which look like cores of nuclear reactors squashed briquettes. Mm -hmm. um, they're just supposed to heat outside the house, or you can even cook there. And it's sort of downsloped on one side of the house, and there's an underventilation system sloping upwards under the house to a chimney on the other side of the house. And then the, uh, the underfloor boardings are coated with either traditionally like clay or mud to prevent the fire elements from seeping into the home. You can imagine historically that doesn't work very well, it breaks down, and traditionally through the 60s and 70s, there were huge numbers of people in. Uh, South Korea had carbon monoxide poisoning due to the failure of the Andal systems. The modern version of it actually used steel plastic PVC piping under floorboards. Is, I mean, the system is good. People like it because it keeps the floor warm. You, people sit on the floor to eat. People sleep on closer to the floor than they do here. But um, an article I had found, mostly in Korean, except the abstract, basically describes the history of the Andal system. 
So I'm, that gives us the setup for the next article, also done uh, out of uh, Taiwan, which doesn't use the same system, but Jen uh, will tell us in a second about the third article. So the two articles are very similar in looking at national health service data um, and a cohort study in each case. So let's start with the one actually not out of Korea, but the one out of Taiwan. Lauren. Great, thank you. Um, so I am going to tell the group about this article called uh, Carbon Monoxide Poisoning and Risk of Deep Vein Thrombosis and Pulmonary Embolism, a Nationwide Retrospective Cohort Study by Wei Sheng and their group out of Taiwan. And this one was a very large um, cohort study, so I think it's kind of easier to frame what they're going to talk about by starting with their conclusion, actually. So what they did is they looked through their national health system database, which uh, it looks like they have like a nationwide um, uh, medical system for insurance and billing and, and everything that works well. And they concluded that people exposed to carbon monoxide had a 3.85-fold higher risk of DVT compared with the general population, but not a significantly increased risk of getting a PE. And this is taken into context with some significant confounders and risk factors in the study. So with that in mind, essentially what they did is they looked through their national health insurance group and they um, did a retrospective cohort study searching for the ICD-9 code of carbon monoxide poisoning, and it was from 2000 to 2010. So they did a 10-year period to capture anyone who had newly diagnosed carbon monoxide poisoning in that time period. Um, and then they followed those patients, um, and because it's like this de-identified data system, so they're able to follow individual patients and have complete follow-up for that entire time period. So they're not relying on people to report back. They're not replying on, uh, re re um, relying on contacting people either. So that is one of their strengths. And then they would follow them to see if they had a DVT or PE anytime in the next 10 years. Uh, or within the 10-year study protocol. They excluded people under the age of 20, um, and then they excluded people if they didn't know their age or sex, and they matched anyone who uh, fell into this cohort of CO poisoning with somebody of a similar age admitted the same year, and they had four controls for every CO poison patient. So they had a significant number of people involved in the study. They also looked at their baseline comorbid history, and they noted people who had AFib, hypertension, diabetes, cerebral vascular disease, heart failure, anyone with cancer, pregnancy, um, or lower leg fracture or surgery as any potential comorbid factor. However, they did not include anyone on hormonal therapy or uh, contraceptive pills. That was not included in the study. Um, and so... Unfortunately, if we look at our uh, famous table one that just describes the patient characteristics, typically when we look at this, we want to see insignificant p-values between our groups. We want to see that groups are similar, that they have no statistically significant differences between them. And we notice that in the carbon monoxide group, there is a markedly significant higher comorbidity um, uh, rate, especially for com comorbidities that are associated with increased risk of DBT. Um, most notably, the hypertension was... 9% uh, while as in the, uh, the um, non-carbon monoxide poison group was 3%, and then also 11% of this group was pregnant, the ones who had CO toxicity, or is only 10% um, in the non-exposed carbon monoxide group. 
Um, so what they did with this data, then they, and they then stratified this into um, age, gender, whether they had comorbidities or not, which I believe is one of the strengths of this article to separate the groups into whether they had comorbidities. And then they also looked, um, they looked at that for DVT and PE. And what they said, uh, what um, they found is, as I described, they found an increased risk of DVT even in the patients with no comorbidities. So if they only compared the groups with no comorbidities, there was still an increased risk of DVT, but not PE. And that was by um, 4.5% hazard ratio in the no group. So they reported the 4.8, which is more pertinent to everyone involved, including the ones with the comorbidities, um, but it's a hazard ratio of 4.5 for um, the groups that didn't have comorbidities. They also wanted to look at the group who had um, respiratory failure or who received hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, and then this is delineated in table three. So essentially they looked at the rate of DVT and, um, I'm sorry, they looked at the rate of PE and DVT in these patients who had respiratory failure and hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but unfortunately they didn't have a group that, I'm sorry, could compare to that were, um, that had hyperbaric or respiratory failure but were not exposed to CO. Thanks guys for the page, sorry about the page there. Um, so they found an increased risk of DVT in people who had respiratory uh, failure or hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but they didn't compare that to a group that wasn't exposed to carbon monoxide. And inherently, when anyone has respiratory failure or hyperbaric oxygen therapy, they're usually a more severe case. So that's somebody who's going to have a prolonged hospital stay. And they're not separating out these patients based on their comorbidities um, because they didn't have a good comparison group because this the carbon monoxide group just had so many comorbidities. So essentially, I don't think this data, even though they say there's this increased risk of DVT if you have more severe carbon monoxide poisoning, they're not taking out all the confounding factors in a, in a way that you can compare it appropriately. Um, lastly, they went through their strengths and their weaknesses, which we've highlighted. I mean, the biggest problem is that you have um, more core comorbidities in the carbon monoxide group. They show the overall incidence and the cumulative incidence of DVT and PE in their um, figure one, but they didn't, this was the everyone, um, all comers, and so they didn't separate out the people with comorbidity. So it, you do see that the DVT rate is very high, but I think this graph is very misleading that they chose to show this one because they're showing people who are at risk for DVT in the first place. Um, and one of the weaknesses that I think they didn't mention in this paper is that they, um, they included anyone with a diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning, but we as toxicologists know that that's a very, very wide range of patients. And something like the first case report where somebody had a carbon monoxide level of 4% can sometimes be chosen to have a diagnosis of carbon monoxide toxicity even if they have no associated symptoms. When you have a group of carbon monoxide toxicity and you have the mild cases or misdiagnosis or um, misrepresentation because you're living in a congested city where your baseline carbon monoxide concentration is going to be higher than a reference range, you may get inappropriately diagnosed. And if you're included in this cohort, that could confound the data significantly. Um, I still think it's strong that they found this association in the people without comorbidities, and I'm glad they selected out that data. Um, and uh, so again, it, this made me think about the link for the first time. Um, I think they appropriately discussed their other limitations and strengths. 
Um, there are other, they don't have um, the confounding factor of smoking and body habitus was also not included. So that makes me take this data with a huge grain of salt is we don't have the people who are on, especially all those pregnant patients, we don't have anyone, we don't have a list of who's on contraceptives or hormonal therapy, we don't have the smokers, we don't have the BMI. Um, and that could really affect the data too. So I'm interested, I feel like maybe there's a link, but I feel like I need more information before I'm gonna start changing my care after reading this study. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly a interesting study, 10 years, where they have a huge database of discharge diagnostic codes. Like you say, you don't have the actual levels, you don't have the specific comorbidities of whether they're on contraceptives or smoking or, or obesity. Um, but they did try to do it with and without the other cofactors of diabetes, hypertension, stroke, heart failure, things that may or may not have an increased risk associated with it. And they broke it all down. And each group had an increased risk of DVT and IP, including people, obviously went up, as age went up, but people less than 40 years old still had a statistically significant increased risk of DVT if they had a coded diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning or exposure. So it certainly suggests that there is maybe something to all this. Um, so now we're going to turn to another big national database, and this is the article that literally just came out about a month ago uh, in uh, Emergency Medicine Journal. And this is the one that actually took place in uh, South Korea where they were able to look at like 20, nearly 23,000 patients in their database. So these are big databases. So Jen, if you can uh, tell us about that one, we'll let you... Sure. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, we can. Okay, perfect. So um, the paper that I looked at is called Risk of Venus Thromboembolism After Carbon Monoxide Poisoning, a Nationwide Population-Based Study. Um, and it was um, published uh, very recently. Um, and it looked at um, sort of to, the goal was to enhance the study um, that Loren referenced and they sort of bring that up in their introduction that um, the previous study, um, sort of the, the gaps in it were that they looked at an association, but they didn't look um, sort of in the acute immediate time right after uh, patients had carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and they weren't attempting to sort of estimate what the, the risk was by interval time periods. Um, so the way the study was designed uh, was really an interesting um, method. It was a cohort, a retrospective cohort crossover study. Um, it was using claims data um, from their national database, so ICD-10 codes, uh, between 2004 and 2015. Um, and essentially, they found both inpatients and outpatients who were um, treated and diagnosed as having carbon monoxide poisoning based on these ICD-10 codes. Um, and the patients were their own control. And so it's a self-matching um, design where sort of the diagram in figure one describes it best, where they look at a one-year period for an individual and see if they, do, after they've had carbon monoxide poisoning and they see if they develop any sort of, you know, thromboembolism. And they did this through 90-day periods over that uh, course 
course of a year from their you know diagnosis event and then their crossover period is they look at the following year and they look at the time intervals in the following year to see if what the risk of that individual developing um, a venous thromboembolism is in the year uh, immediately following their initial um, examination year, if that makes sense. Um, so, um, like I said, they were looking for the incidence of venous thromboembolism, so both PE and DVT. Um, they excluded patients who had had a diagnosis of PE or DVT in the two-year period prior to their diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and I think that sort of captures the general um, methodology. And then they uh, looked at, they did certain sensitivity analyses later, which I can describe. Um, so what they found was uh, among the the total uh, patients included, which were um, over 22,000 patients, um, there were 130 uh, venous thromboembolism cases in the first year, um, and then 81 in the second year. So, in looking at all of these um, patients, the sort of overall incidence of people developing venous thromboembolism uh, after carbon monoxide um, uh, exposure uh, was pretty low. But in those who um, did develop it, um, you can see that the risk of them developing it, um, which is in table two, um, is pretty consistently higher for both um, pulmonary embolism and DVT. Uh, in the first 90 days after their event. Um, the uh, one thing I will say is that if you look back at table one, um, they sort of break out the characteristics of the study population. Um, and in their initial evaluation, they included patients who had a variety of comorbidities. Um, they don't describe anything about patients' uh, smoking habits. Um, and then they also include patients with uh, certain risk factors for uh, thromboembolism. So um, after seeing that there was this uh, increased um, odds ratio in the first 90 days, they then split it out into 30-day intervals. So this is in figure three. You can see that the odds ratio is much higher in the zero to 90 day period. Um, so then they looked at it in the 30 day periods. Um, and you can again see that the sort of highest um, risk time, um, or I guess the most frequent time, um, is in the zero to 30 day period after uh, carbon monoxide exposure. So then what they did um, was they did some sensitivity analyses looking at taking certain groups um, out, so they excluded patients who died, um, and they still saw this uh, same effect. Um, they took out patients uh, who had any of those risk factors, so uh, leg fracture, a surgery within the last 90 days, um, have been on hormone replacement therapy, or have been pregnant within the last 90 days, um, 
and they again saw the, the higher odds ratio in the zero to 90 day period and particularly in the zero to 30 day period. Um, they then sort of vaguely say we adjusted for anticoagulant and antiplatelet drugs um, and hospitalizations for a variety of chronic illnesses um, during the cohort and crossover periods and the previous 90 day period. Um, and they say that those results were similar, but the table is not included uh, in the paper. And so they seem to suggest that there is this um, similar effect for a variety of groups. Um, in figure four, they break it out into both inpatients and outpatients, and the cumulative incidence of both uh, all venous thrombombolisms, PEs, and DVTs and you can see that, again, sort of there's this uh, rapid increase in incidence um, in the zero to 90 day period, and then the curve becomes a little bit more flat um, for venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism. I thought the curve was a little bit sort of continuous, um, like, sorry, not continuous, like similarly sloped for the DVT um, across the entire time period, although the data suggests that it is still higher in the first 90 days. Um, and then they go on to discuss their um, limitations as well. I think there's a few important ones to point out. Um, the one, there's no data in this study about how long the patients were exposed to carbon monoxide, um, how, like, in terms of like how long of an entire time period, I think the thing that you brought up, Zane, as to like how their heating systems are set up. You know, if anyone is a chronic smoker, they're going to have some cumulative carbon monoxide exposure. Um, they also don't talk about if it's an acute exposure, how long it took for transport to get there, what treatments they received in the hospital. And then they also bring up that smoking and obesity isn't, aren't really accounted for um, as confounders. And I think those are all really important confounders that um, could contribute to maybe some of the findings. Um, secondly, um, nobody, they don't have any concentrations um, at the time of diagnosis. Um, and so, like I said, we know that sometimes if somebody's living in a city or is a chronic smoker, they'll have um, elevated uh, concentrations and sort of what does that mean in terms of the risk um, and then third, um, this is all based on ICD-10 codes, and there's always a risk of, you know, under-reporting um, when you have to pick a code or when things are um, coded based on this. And so there may be data that is uh, missing from the study um, that could uh, alter the results. But I did think it was interesting. I felt like they tried to slice the data multiple ways and account for at least some confounders um, and it seemed to be a pretty consistent association that they were finding. Um, so sort of like uh, Lauren said with uh, her paper, I found it interesting with still um, maybe some um, things that could be improved upon in a future study. Yeah, thanks. So this, yeah, this study was different in that instead of a cohort where in 
Oren's uh, paper, they uh, matched not to four people of the same age and locality and time period that was admitted, but they actually matched the patients themselves. So if they had risk factors for PE before, you know, unless they suddenly developed AFib in the intervening couple of years, they still had risk factors for PE afterwards. And they found not just an association with DVT, as the first study did, but also association with PE. And as far as sort of the plausibility aspect, um, it really was the most significant in the first 30 days after exposure, which lends a causation uh, argument, and then up to 90 days. And, you know, they, in the discussion, they sort of alluded to the fact that, like, you know, we didn't really think, like, things like hip fractures and knee surgery would put people at risk for... Um, DBT certainly, but now we know they certainly do. They have, uh, you know, uh, hazard ratios of 17 and 13 for causing uh, DBT, and we actually treat people with hip surgery for a month and people with knee surgery for two weeks with uh, either warfarin or NOAX, is sort of the emerging thing we do now. So it sort of obtusely raises the question, is there enough here that we should be thinking about like either screening with ultrasounds for people with a, who've been in carbon monoxide or getting D-dimers on people with carbon monoxide or should we just make it easy and just put everybody on a NOAC for 30 days or 90 days? Answers to all those questions are not going to be answered today or unless someone does another study. But I'd like to kind of jump back into is there a basic science reason why this would even happen in the first place? Because just on the intuitive level, it doesn't see, under, it's hard to understand why carbon monoxide would do anything to the clotting factor, creates increased uh, risk of clotting. So there's an intriguing paper with an interesting title, and uh, John's going to tackle that one for us. Thanks, Zane. Um, so this paper is a review article titled Carbon Monoxide Anticoagulant or Procoagulant by Nielsen and Pretorius. Um, they start off the paper um, kind of just talking about how, you know, in a general healthy adult, um, there is a normal production of carbon monoxide during the day, a secondary catabolism of heme um, by the heme oxygenase system, notably an inducible isoform heme oxygenase 1. Um, and they kind of build their argument for doing this review, stating that there's lots of research showing that there's evidence of carbon monoxide acting as a procoagulant and evidence of carbon monoxide as an anticoagulant. So they did this review to kind of just look at these two conflicting bodies of research around the same um, subject. So we'll dive into the uh, first section, which is the evidence that they reviewed um, that states carbon monoxide is an anticoagulant and pro-fibrinolytic agent. Um, their first argument is that if, if carbon monoxide does diminish um, um, platelet formation and is an anticoagulant, then there should be some evidence of case reports resulting from hemorrhagic injury. And they looked through the literature and found um, a few um, which presented notably with hemorrhagic infarction of the brain, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and retinal hemorrhage. And these were thought to be associated with carbon monoxide poisoning based on the cases. Um, the carbon carboxyhemoglobin values for those cases varied between 21 and 35%. Um, and uh, all the authors had their own hypotheses as to why this happened, but there, at that time there was no um, assessment of platelet function or um, coagulation function in these patients performed. Um, 
So looking at the other evidence that they found, um, these authors tried to come up with an explanation as to why carbon monoxide um, has a, shows a decrease in coagulation in platelet aggregation in some studies. Uh, they mentioned a study in tobacco smokers where they had them smoking increasing concentrations of nicotine. Um, and in that study, they noted that carboxy alone was not associated with an enhancement in platelet aggregation. And instead, carboxy, or carbon monoxide exposure was associated with the decreased release of adenine diphosphate and serotonin from platelets. Um, two um, molecules that are important in platelet activation. Um, a, another uh, in vitro study that was done um, mentioned that uh, carbon monoxide inhibits calcium entry into human platelets and uh, there appears to be a decreased platelet aggregation by a mechanism that's independent of an increase in soluble guanylate cyclase. Um, one thing we do want to point out is all these studies are done with carbon monoxide releasing molecules, not necessarily just carbon monoxide exposure. So there may be a slight difference there as to an organic exposure to carbon monoxide versus this molecule that's corms. Um, further evidence that they looked at is um, they found more in vitro findings that, again, um, mentioned that there's a decrease in platelet aggregation and activation. Um, there, there was one study that did contrast this, um, and it looked at platelet aggregation studies. Um, they determined platelet activation by mean platelet volume in healthy volunteers exposed to passive smoking or victims of carbon monoxide poisoning, and those had demonstrated an enhanced activation following exposure to carbon monoxide. So ultimately, there was a conflict between the in vitro human literature that they found on the effects of platelet function and in vivo investigation um, has yet to be performed well. Um, they do have multiple in vivo human studies that they performed. Um, these were on mice and rodent models. Um, and in those models, they noted a decreased thrombus formation um, with induction of the um, uh, heme oxygenase 1. Um, and in a rat study, they noted that there was a decrease in carotid injury, or a decrease in thrombus formation after carotid injury, um, suggesting again a decreased um, platelet aggregation or platelet inhibition of some form. It should be noted that in the, all of the animal models, these, psycho, uh, these rats exhibited a soluble guanylate cyclase dependent mechanism by which CO decreased platelet aggregation, again, different from humans that they saw. Um, so there's some other mechanism that is clearly different. Um, and ultimately, they felt that um, platelet function measures of intravascular thrombus formation were decreased in mice and rats in all of these studies. So overall, they felt that there's some anecdotal evidence of CO exposure associated with hemorrhagic phenomena in humans. Um, however, there is some conflicting data just within the animal studies um, versus the human studies that are um, in that body of evidence. Um, and that's all that they had for evidence that CO was an anticoagulant and a profibromolytic agent. Um, so then they went into clinical evidence that carbon monoxide is a procoagulant and antifibromolytic agent. Um, and the uh, first study that they looked at was um, looking at degree of exposure of never smokers, and there was a they took never smokers who were in the top quartile of carbon monoxide concentrations 
0.91% and compared it to the lowest quartile. Um, and they found a 3.7 relative risk increase of cardiovascular events and a 2.2 times relative risk increase of death compared with that lower group, um, suggesting that carbon monoxide may be a procoagulant. Um, However, all of those studies that looked at that, um, none of them involved a pure exposure to carbon monoxide. These were all workplace exposures where there's other, other factors involved and lots of confounding variables, um, products of combustion, other things that could have participated in these um, changes in the risk. Um, going through, um, the, uh, there are a multi multiple cases where there was um, thought that um, carbon monoxide mediated um, some sort of thrombotic event. Um, so there's cases of carbon monoxide poisoning causing myocardial injury, thrombosis of a coronary arterial stent, um, pulmonary embolism, acute intracardiac thrombus in the right atrium or the left ventricle. Um, and these were all in patients with a diagnosis of acute carbon monoxide poisoning. Notably, the range for all of these cases varied wildly from as low as 2.6% um, up to 52.2%. So there are lots of cases where people have been shown to have some sort of thrombus in the event of acute poisoning. However, uh, the range was quite large. Um, and then they start to talk about in vitro studies. And there was... Um, a study done in 2008 um, which looked at um, platelet formation and strength uh, through um, thromboelastography. Um, so they took a carbon monoxide releasing molecule and they exposed blood to it and they looked at the difference um, of platelet formation and strength. Um, and that's kind of accentuated in figure one um, where they have one version of uh, plasma exposed to nothing and then another one exposed to the corm. And you can see that um, there is an increase in the velocity of thrombus growth as well as the overall clot strength, um, which would argue that this is a procoagulant um, molecule. Um, they did note in that study, um, what they then did is they took the same blood and they exposed it to TPA to see if there was a difference in um, breaking up the clot. And that's in figure two. Um, and you can see that again, with exposure to the corn, there is a increase in the velocity of the thrombus and a prolonged um, overall clot strength. And then once TPA was given, the clot did persist compared to the control. Um, so they actually took different sets of blood as well um, along this, since that showed um, prolonged clot strength. Um, and they took blood um, plasma obtained from individuals with hemophilia A and B following warfarin administration, um, patients that were hypothermic or who had hemodilution or following cardiopulmonary bypass to examine. Um, and when tested, the um, corm 2 attenuated TPA mediated fibrinolysis, um, yeah. it appeared that carbon monoxide could potentially attenuate coagulopathy caused by multiple etiologies. 
Um, so it seems that they found similar events or similar um, findings based on all of those different blood samples. Um, then what they did, and um, this I should note that from here on out, 60% of these cited studies are by the authors. Um, so like the, this is essentially like all of their work that they've been doing. Um, so then what they did, um, this is interesting, um, they wanted to characterize the mechanism of, by which carbon dioxide enhanced coagulation, and they found that when they um, were using mass spectrometry, spectrometry um, they noted that there were heme groups present in the fibrinogen digest. Um, and this indicated that there was a heme-based modulation of fibrinogen function. And so they described a new complex of carbon monoxide um, bound to fibrinogen called carboxyheme fibrinogen. And um, they thought that this was one way that there was a modulation of the platelet aggregation. Um, and so they then did multiple studies where they looked at platelet aggregation, um, and they also looked to see in patients who are hypercoagulable if these, uh, if this molecule, the COHF formation, was present. And um, that was done in patients that were hypercoagulable already, such as cancer patients. And they did find that there were increased concentrations, um, arguing that the this may be a reason why some patients are hypercoagulable. Um, there were multiple other studies done um, for this, uh, but ultimately each study further gave the argument that there was an increased um, procoagulant formation if carbon monoxide exposure was present. Um, I didn't know how, if you want me to go much further. No, that's pretty much, I think, you know, of the weight <laughs> of the pro and anti, yeah. they sort of like, well, let's try to do this on both sides, but in reality, it seems like if we're going to call one or the other, carbon monoxide probably is more procoagulant than anticoagulant. And, and their research line has been, as others have been, in this new molecule, CORM, carbon monoxide releasing molecules, how it fits in. Therapeutically, I don't know why you would want to make someone hypercoagulable, but that's what they do. And of the three molecules that are being pursued in that line of inquest, the quorum two seems to be the one that seems to have the most research done on it. And they identify this carbon monoxide binding to fibrinogen that may be the actual physiologic problem on why people are their platelets are clot. Is, is now hypercoagulable. They also talk about other like plasmin and mm. alpha two antiplasmin, um, lengthening the clot, lysis time. Um, but the most research they did, I think, was with that carboxyheme fibrinogen molecule. Um, and overall, they had those two bodies of evidence. <coughs> There's definitely one seems more stacked, which was a procoagulant. Again, the majority of which they have done their research in. Well, I mostly wanted to bring that in to show that there is probably a physiologic basic science reason why carbon monoxide may be the culprit for increased risk of DVT here. Um, and it probably needs to be looked at further, and I can think of all sorts of studies, and people listening to these podcasts can probably start putting together multi-center places. Should we be getting coagulation factors on people with carbon monoxide poisoning? Should we throw a D-dimer in the way we often throw in a 
troponin, and I, I always hesitate with that because, like, you know, what do you do with a positive D-dimer? Do you just say, okay, you still have carbon monoxide poisoning, I'm going to put you in the chamber. Do I just anticoagulate you? Do I do studies to figure out where your clot is recently? Do I think it's a false positive, as many D-dimers can be, or some D-dimers can be? Do I do more sophisticated testing, like ultrasound, like TEGS? I mean, it's all sorts of way uh, people can go. Um, and let's say everything's negative, should you do like daily D-dimers or daily ultrasounds like they used to do in post-surgical patients at one point? Multiple lines of inquiry could be opened here to what to do with our carbon monoxide patients. I don't think the data exists right now to say, let's just put everybody on a NOAC for 30 days, or you know, which I, I, but I think you should be suspicious that these patients are atypically at risk although the incidence is only 1%, it's if they come back a week later or a month later and they tell you they're having trouble breathing or their leg hurts, I mean, you should take it seriously even though they're 20 years old and have no risk factors. Um, so I want to finish up with this last article I, I found just fascinating. It's got nothing to do with uh, carbon monoxide, uh, maybe indirectly. This is a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of venous thrombosis during space flight. So two months into their sojourn on the International Space Station, uh, an astronaut, and they don't give age or anything else, they're doing a study up there where they're ultrasounding like all their arms and legs while weightlessness. And without symptoms, they find a, uh, a, ipsilo, a prominent external jugular vein thrombosis on one of the astronauts in space, on the space station. So um, in what I would call the ultimate teleradiology event. <laughs> For right now. Two radiologists on Earth verified it. Probably in their pajamas in their bedroom. By the time <laughs> okay. And they say, yeah, you got a clock there, and we should do something about it. So they went through their pharmaceutical stockpile on the space station, and they found out they had 20 vials of 3 milligrams of anoxaparin. And uh, they did a little calculation and consulted with everybody back at NASA about what they should do. And they started them on um, standard dose, uh, anoxaparin, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, once a day. And then they reduced it after 30 days to 1 milligram to kind of extend it over to point so, so they could start the patient on uh, a Pixaban. And the Pixaban wasn't on the space station. It was being delivered, um, your ultimate... Um, pharmaceutical delivery service by the spacecraft that was going to dock with the International Space Station uh, the next round. They sent up, in addition to everything else they were taking, a bunch of doses of Pixaban. The person wasn't coming home. They were staying on the space station. They were going to get their Pixaban as soon as it arrived. And, and that's, in fact, what, what they did. They started on uh, Pixaban 5 milligrams twice a day for 42 days and then dropped it down to 2.5 twice a day for three months after the diagnosis. They've continued sonographic surveillance um, every 7 to 21 day intervals, showed progressive organization, a volume reduction of the thrombos. Uh, flow through the affected internal jugular was, was pretty good. They had spontaneous flow was absent after 90 days of anticoagulation, but when they got uh, sort of back to earth, eventually uh, it looks like everything was better. Um, and they got a nice little timeline in, the, in their letter of how all this worked. Um, they basically had no thrombus 10 days after landing, and they did an expensive thrombophilia workup 
We don't say what that is, but I presume it's sort of, you know, protein S, protein C, uh, milligrams, all those factors, and she didn't have any. That person, since he or she, did not have any of it. Um, they say this is a weird thrombus up in your neck. It's usually someone had a central line or somebody had cancer. Obviously, we didn't do either of those. She does not, the person does not have cancer. And then they sort of pat themselves in the back for like medical decision making and space and everything else that goes on. But um, ultimately, they say, could weightlessness be a factor in DBT risk factors? So one more thing, you can ask your patient if they <laughs> experience weightlessness. We That's can put that in the per I think we should change PERC yeah. score, you know, carbon monoxide exposure and weightlessness. Like I did that. So I'll tell this story once. I, I, I trained at George, Georgetown where a lot of sort of people came in and there was some guy came in, he was ultimately diagnosed with cancer and the internal medicine resident was in there asking about occupational exposures and things like that. And he's kind of a gruff old school <laughs> astronaut. And he turns around to the medicine resident and he says, I walked on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That was this exposure risk. So anyway, some fodder to think about um, about carbon monoxide. One more controversy we can get into um, as far as does it increase risk of venous thromboembolism? What we should do to investigate that? What we should do to treat that? Um, and so until next time, we'll uh, call it a day. Thanks. <laughs>